Man, it feels like we haven't recorded in forever, doesn't it? I know. Well, actually, it's been, what, two weeks now? Because we recorded yeah, that so other one back-to-back. Yeah, because yeah, I was out of right. town. Yeah, so I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it yesterday, and you texted me and said, hey, we're recording tomorrow morning. Um, and I was like, yeah, wow, it's already going to be Friday of next week. <laughs> you know? Um, so it's it, the last, yeah, last couple weeks have passed uh, in a blur. There's been a lot of uh, well, you've had a crazy pretty stuff going crazy on. week this week. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a sad week, but also a happy week at the same time. Uh, the, this past Saturday, so it's we're recording this Friday, May 1st. Last Saturday, uh, my little nephew, and it's almost like terrible deja vu, because back mm. in 2010, an 11-month-old nephew of mine uh, died of, he had a, a very bizarre liver condition, um, and that he ended up dying from it. Uh, he was 11 months old. And then this past Saturday, same brother and same sister-in-law, their fourth child, uh, they took him to the hospital and got an MRI and found a, a cancerous brain tumor. Um, so then Monday they went in and they operated and he's, he's 18 months old. So he's still a pretty little kid. And this tumor was the size of a baseball. That's um, insane. So it was, it was huge. Yeah. And they showed us, you know, MR, the MRI scans of the brain and just the difference between his brain and a, a quote unquote normal toddler's brain. And it's, it's just a huge difference. So, I mean, long story short, he's doing really well. He's doing way better than they expected. Um, in fact, the surgeon, he's the surgeon who operated on him has done a thousand of these operations in the last two and a half years, which is good, mm-hmm. relatively speaking, right? <laughs> you, of course, in a perfect world, you hope that there's no, none of them. Um, but he's done a thousand of them. So he has experience. And um, they had two other kids who had tumors the size of his and both of them died in surgery. So he made it out and he's been making incredible progress. Neurologically, he's sound. There's no brain damage. There's no, you know, physical motor, like the, his motor skills aren't inhibited um, or anything like that. So it's it's really good. His brain is draining the way it should. So they didn't have to put a shunt in his head and run a line to his stomach. None of that craziness um, that they thought, you know, was kind of a foregone conclusion that they're going to have to do. Um, so it's just been, it's been, while it's been ob- for, sad for obvious reasons, um, also very happy kind of on the back end that it's kind of turned out as well as it has. Um, so yeah, last, last I heard, I, I visited him in the hospital yesterday. Um, and I've been trying to visit him as much as I can. Um, but he seems to be doing pretty good. Um, and you know, he's talking again and moving around and he knows, you know, he's kind of recognizing everybody and, and things like that. So it's, Bad, but good. Yeah, it's it's incredible because whenever you're dealing with anything, I've had a few people that I know, whether it's them or, you know, friends or relatives that have anything to do with the brain, it's always terrifying. And they always tell you about the risks. At one point I had, they noticed I had some sort of thing in my brain. Apparently it's nothing, mm-hmm. but it's just something to keep an eye on. But it's always scary, especially when, when you're dealing with, like, like you said, a tumor the size of a baseball. Um, right. But I'm... I'm incredibly happy that Jason's doing well and uh, he'll be on a road to recovery. Yeah, well, he's he's well on his way. So, That's good yeah, to hear. We're, we're happy about it. So, really, yeah, sad news, like I said, but also not as sad as it could have been. So, kind of happy news. But with that in mind, I guess we should welcome everybody to the 12th episode of the We Geeks podcast. Um, although, I should make a quick mention before we totally jump into the show. It is pretty darn fascinating, all the different machines and everything they have at the hospital. Mm. I was telling my sister-in-law yesterday that just like, I don't know, you sit there and you see the kids, because obviously he's in, he's in a big children's hospital. Um, you see all the kids and stuff that are going through everything they're going through. And it like, for me at least, it makes me want to become a surgeon. Right. Because it just would be so awesome to be able to do that kind of stuff. Um, and just, I mean, everything from the little machines they have that dispense, you know, you load a syringe into it and it just dispenses the medication a tiny little bit at a time, you know, per the doctor's orders, um, you know, I just, just all this, the breathing machine he's hooked up, he was hooked up to, um, you know, all this different stuff that they have, um, is just so cool. And all the, you know, obviously the computer monitors everywhere with heart rates and, you know, respiratory this and, you know, intracranial pressure that all, you know, all this different craziness. Um, so it's pretty, uh, it's pretty neat. It's funny. We always realize these things after we finish school. Uh, I can't tell you how many lectures and how many articles I've read on neuroscience and neurology and things like that because it just fascinates me. And I would love to become like a surgeon or a neurologist or a neuroscience. But you know, it's a little bit too – I mean it's not too late. But 
really it's too, it's kind of too late. But we always realize it because going through school, we don't really pay attention. We're like, oh, I'm in science class. I hate this. I just want to go home and play video games. And then years later, like oh, I should have probably paid attention in that class. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like the that combination of it's really fascinating and you want to talk about affecting real good and real change um, on, on a somewhat small scale, I guess. But still, I mean, it's such immediate, real human life. Uh, it's, it's pretty cool. It is. Yeah, so, so like anyway. you mentioned, episode number 12. Last week, if you caught last week, that episode was doing actually very well. It was our 10 tips on becoming a better designer. I think it's closing in on 1,000 views. Not there yet, so definitely go check that out on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Actually, it might be, including iTunes, it might be at 1,000 views. We're getting some nice, or listens, I should say. We're getting some nice listens on iTunes. We haven't gotten any reviews since last week on iTunes, so go to iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review if you love this content or love this podcast. Review the show. Yeah. Review the show. Tell us nice things or bad things if you really don't like us. We're, Tell us bad things, especially if you want to get on the air. That's true. We will definitely read your <laughs> negative reviews, but only leave them if you have something negative to say. Um, and of course, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash wegeeks, where you can, if you really, really like our show, you can support us for you know $1, $3, whatever. And we have three patrons right now. Michael, who actually lives not too far from me in Colorado, Jordan, and Valdez. And Valdez is our $25 patron, I think. 2025, 20, I don't know, something like that. And you can find him over at Camis, K A M I S, 1232.deviantart.com. So thank you for supporting our podcast. Yeah, he's got some pretty cool uh, artwork over there. He does. He actually made this like really cool metallic coaster like design of the Wee Geeks logo. It's kind of cool. You should check that out. Yeah. So tell me about the Apple Watch. Yes. I know you, yours came in, right? I do. Um, I have the Apple Watch on my I, wrist right now. I am looking at it. There it is. You can see it on the video, but not if you're listening to the podcast. Um, it's black. It's black. I got the, the black Space strap. Gray Sport model because I just think it looks very minimalistic, very sleek. I'm not a big... Do you have the Space Gray iPhone as well? Uh, I don't, actually. I have the Silver iPhone, which I guess uh, is so kind of backwards, so you don't have but... It. I'll have you don't to have change it matching that. up then. I'll have to change that for next year. <laughs> See, I I have the gold iPhone six, so I couldn't afford the Apple Watch <laughs> unless, of course, I went and followed Casey Neistat's video and just spray paint the watch gold. That was actually kind of <laughs> interesting. I shared that on Google Plus, and it got a ton. I actually had to d- disable comments on that post at one point because people were spamming like crazy when that post went viral. Um, <laughs> I I don't know if I would actually. I said it on the post I would probably do it, but I wouldn't actually do it because it's probably not good for the device, but it actually looked very similar to the gold Apple Watch. It wasn't as shiny, but it definitely looked gold. It's something that I would consider doing on a second Apple Watch just for the heck of it. Yeah, it's definitely a cool idea. And I mean, just brilliant for a, a viral video attempt. Yeah. and if, that that Honestly, that would be the reason I would do it if I thought about it. And I was like, you know what? That actually might work as a viral video. Yeah, and of Boom, course, would Apple would never release a gold uh, plate, well, I wouldn't say gold plated, but like a gold colored, kind of like the gold iPhone. They wouldn't release that because then there would be no incentive to buy the actual gold Apple Watch. Right. You got to maintain that exclusivity. Of course. So, anyways, my first impressions of this thing are not much different than the, what I thought would be the case when I was determining whether or not I should buy it. Again, I bought the Apple Watch not necessarily because I thought it would be revolutionary, but because I'm a geek. And I had to have it. I had to try it out and see what the deal is. And I'm actually working on a full review over at iceflowstudios.com, which should be out maybe late next week, maybe the week after. I want to make sure I really use this thing for a solid week or solid two weeks before I release anything and give my final thoughts. But basically, the gist of the review is that the Apple Watch 2 is going to be fantastic. So the setup process was very simple. Uh, I unpacked it from its very strangely long box. And Mm -hmm. I was actually able to use the Apple Watch app on the iPhone. I pointed it at the Apple Watch that was on my wrist and it recognized that it was an Apple Watch and it started to sync. And it gave me a bunch of options, whether I want to sync all the apps or none of the apps and then do it one by one. And I did it one by one because there's a lot of apps that I have on my phone that have Apple Watch versions that I just don't want. I'm not looking to play games on my Apple Watch. I'm just looking to use it as a fitness device, get notifications when my phone isn't on me, so on and so forth. And 
in those aspects, the Apple Watch does a very good job. Uh, I would, went for a few runs, even though it's very difficult for me because I have a heart condition. I pushed through, I ran a few times. I've also been using my indoor elliptical bike, which has been okay. Of course, when you're dealing with like an indoor bike, the Apple Watch can't really measure how far you're going because there's nothing mm. to really measure it against. It does measure your heartbeat right. and fairly accurate at least. Um, it does measure calories, but I think it's more of an estimation because it's not really going yeah. against distance. I do like a high velocity training on my indoor bike where I go kind of slow and then very quickly and then slow again. And I didn't really notice much of a change in the increase of the calories that it said I was burning. So I think it's more mostly an estimation. But one thing that's kind of cool is that you can, despite what some people are saying, you can run outside without your phone on you and just use the Apple Watch. So the way that works is when you go outside with your Apple Watch and your iPhone for the first, second, or third time, it starts to learn your running habits and learn how far your strides are and things like that. And then when you finally start running without the, your iPhone and leave it at home and just have the Apple Watch, it uses what it learned from your previous runs to estimate how far you're running because it obviously doesn't have built-in GPS. And it's um, done actually a very accurate job within like 0 0.1 of a mile. It's fairly accurate, I would say. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And I know because I've just like in the past week, week, well, two weeks, I guess now, I've gotten on this little running kick um, just because I don't know why. I just feel like it's a, a cool, easy way to get up and, and have some sort of workout right in the morning rather than going to the gym because I, I – if I go to the gym and work out in the morning, I end up vomiting up my breakfast because I just mm. can't hold myself back and I go crazy. Um, so whereas running is a little bit more, you know, if I start to feel, uh, you know, I can just, you know, all right, well, I'll walk back to the house or whatever. Um, and it's been a good couple weeks. But yeah, I mean, I literally jog. Um, I mean, I'm actually wearing my a pair of jogging shorts now. Um, but I, I jog with the iPhone in my hand. Because I don't really want to keep it in my pocket. I'm afraid that it's like these slippery, you know, athletic-y, you know, pockets. You know how those are. And I don't want mm -hmm. the phone to like fly out when I'm, while I'm running or jostle around or who knows what. So I've been holding on to it. And I mean I do know there's like the armbands that you see people put, you know, up on their arm. But the reason I haven't gotten one of them is because they just seem like they're funky and, and, and difficult to use at the gym. You know what I mean? If I, I've got it up there on my arm and I'm benching or I, you know, brush my arm against the bar, bam, I shatter my screen or something like that. So for – Usually at the gym, I have like Bluetooth earbuds that are just wireless that I use that way. Um, but for running, it doesn't solve the problem of having a place to hold it. Um, but I think something like the Apple Watch being right there on your arm. And I know they're all the health apps and stuff on the phone. I'm not entirely sure how they work. I do keep track of my steps just because it's kind of fun to do. You know, see how many times I've, you know, gotten up and walked around and all that stuff. Um, but I feel like the Apple Watch being right there pressed against your skin, stuff like you said, the heartbeat, uh, and the caloric stuff, I don't know you know, how, how accurate that would be, but I know it's all guesstimate. It's still fun to see the numbers because it's something you're sort of uh, basing progress on or you're feeling like you're, you're getting something done. Um, so I feel like you know, for the running side of things, it could be really, really cool. Um, and there's a lot of great running apps. I mean, obviously. Um, so something like the um, the watch would be probably great for that. And even maybe for working out too, because your wrist. Um, I mean, unless you're doing like a lot of crazy powerlifting or using wrist straps and stuff like that for benching and deadlifting and whatnot, I, I would think the wrist is fairly okay to put something there. Um, you know, I mean, it might limit some of the exercises, but yeah, I mean, it seems like it'd be a great thing for fitness. Um, I do know, before you go on and, and start making other points about the Apple Watch, Apple, was it three ads that they launched to show you how you would use the Apple Watch in real life or something? Mm -hmm. yep. I watched all three of them, still had no better understanding of how I would use the Apple Watch in real life. Um, but they were well-shot ads, though, so I enjoyed that. Um, but I guess, you know, is, is, it, is it just the kind of thing where it's going to be the Apple Watch 2.0? That's going to really be, you've got to have it. A part of me personally feels like it's going to be as companies and as services begin to integrate the Apple Watch into stuff like a remote control for your TV or any anything like that where people are like, hey, yeah, I normally do that garage door opener, right? I mean, stuff like that. I could see that being where people are like, yeah, because who thought... 
I mean, well, I'm, I shouldn't say that. I remember five or six years ago when people were talking about TV coming to a phone. I was like, yeah. I mean, people love a TV, but they're never going to be watching TV on their phones. I remember thinking that. Now it's like everyone's got Netflix on their phone or YouTube on their phone or, you know, this Voodoo server, any of these video streaming services. Everybody's got one of them on their phone, even if it's something as simple as Instagram video or Vine, which I guess that's not really TV TV. But a lot of people are watching television and movie type stuff on their phone. Um, so, you know, now that you have the Apple Watch, do you feel like it's worth the money? Do you feel like the mainstream would get it? Uh, or is it something where it's it, we're going to have to wait until – it's more of a mainstream thing or has it become, how does it become more of a mainstream thing? I guess. Has it become mainstream? Um, no, no, how, how, how does it become mainstream? I'm sorry. Oh, so yeah, your video froze for a second. Actually, it's still frozen. Um, there you go. So I guess the question of, is it worth the money? The, mm -hmm. the model that I got was the 42 millimeter model. Uh, cause I have heard a lot of people saying that the 38 millimeter is just way too small. So I got the 42 so it's four hundred dollars for the space gray sport model. Uh, it's. I, I want to say no. I want to say it is not worth the four hundred dollars at the moment because there are so many limitations. Um, the battery life actually is very strong. In the few days I've been using it, I think the the lowest that my battery has gotten before I go to bed has been sixty five percent, which is incredible because. You keep hearing that you're going to have to charge it every night and you're going to you're not going to be able to go a whole day with using your apple watch blah 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 but unless you play games on this thing all day every day you're not going to drain the battery so the battery life is actually quite fantastic and but like power saves quickly or how does that work i mean it, it when when you just have it on your wrist i'm assuming the screen is off correct it is off yeah and when you lift your wrist, it knows you're lifting your wrist to take a look at it, and the screen turns on within like a millisecond or so. And then when okay. you put your wrist down, the screen turns off. And you gotcha. can customize whether or not when you lift your wrist, it goes to the watch face or the last thing you were doing. So if you're doing, let's say, uh, a workout or something like that, mm -hmm. you can customize it so that when you lift your wrist, it goes back to the workout so you can see exactly what the next step is. Right, or even something I would imagine like cooking a recipe. Right, yeah. Right? I mean something so, like that. Yeah, so in... In that aspect, it's a decent device, but what I've found very frustrating is the lack, I wouldn't say the lack of applications, because there are a lot of applications available right now on the Apple Watch. Developers are definitely jumping on this thing, but, and I'm not sure if it's an API restriction or what it, or just maybe they didn't have enough time, but so many of the apps are completely useless. Like the Twitter app, for example, I can kind of browse recent tweets on the app, but I can't see mentions, I can't see retweets or anything like that. So, and if I get a tweet on my, as a notification, I can't retweet it. I can favorite it, but I can't retweet it. So a lot of these apps, there's so many limitations that it's just like, I don't know why it's on my wrist. Mm -hmm. uh, might as well just pull out my phone and use it that way. But like you said, I think the real benefit to not only the Apple Watch, but all smartwatches in general, is when it starts integrating seamlessly with your devices around the home, like the garage door, like you mentioned, or like your lights or the thermostat. I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting in my office or I'm sitting in my bed and I don't have my phone directly on me and it's just crazy hot in the room and I just want to turn my thermostat down or turn the air on and I have to walk all the way downstairs, turn the thermostat. If I can just lift my wrist, maybe even tell Siri just to turn my thermostat, turn the air on, that would be that would make th this thing worth it but right now or what about what about the watch that detects either your body temperature or the temperature around you and automatically oh. adjusts based on a preference that you put in already mhm mm i mean yeah, that yeah there is a device there is a smart thermostat out there it's not the nest but there's another one that mm -hmm. has like control points throughout your house that can determine whether or not a room is too hot or too cold and it adjusts it if you can bring that onto the actual watch itself now we're talking so I think it's it's a it's a 1.0 product. There's no question about that. And I still haven't found a need for this device. I mean, again, it's great when I'm running or biking or whatever it might be fitness-wise. But other than that, kind of like the iPad or at least the original iPad, it doesn't solve any problems. And you can make the argument that the iPad now doesn't solve any problems, um, but it doesn't. 
But I do think as Apple imp implements more sensors and developers start using it more wisely to connect with other devices, then it, then we're going to be talking. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I feel like it's we have this generation of one-handed teenagers, right? Because every time you see a group of these kids, they have one hand free, but the other hand has a cell phone in it, right? And, and they're usually on the cell phone. And I sort of feel like Apple is taking uh, taking the phone out of the pocket while allowing you to have two hands free with something like the the Apple Watch. Now, albeit it's a very small screen right now, but you've seen like those sci-fi movies and stuff where you have like the, the screen strapped around the inside of your forearm or whatever it is. Um, and who knows? I mean, who knows what can be done with the watch with a smaller screen like that? Um, and we just have to wait for an Android smartwatch that has a six-inch screen, right? Because it's not what, <laughs> with Android, it's all about the screen size. Um, no, no, no. But um, you get what I'm saying where... Uh, I almost wonder if that's the direction or that's the the underlying driving force of what Apple's doing if they can get the app developers and all of the – obviously, you can do more things with an, a device that's attached to your body as far as detection and automation and things like that, detecting bodily movement. I mean we're using our arms to express ourselves a lot more than our hips. Um, so you know, taking the phone from a hip pocket and essentially placing it on your wrist – I feel like there's a lot more practical stuff that could come out of that. Um, but, I mean, it really remains to be seen. But I think it's a really, really interesting direction that Apple's going with it. Um, and, I mean, it looks like it's pretty successful. I was just starting to tell you before that I saw an article um, uh, from, I can't remember, one of these tech blogs that says the, the Apple Watch is, of all of Apple's products, the Apple Watch has the highest profit margin um, of anything uh, that, you know, of any device or any product they've sold before. Um, and they give a little bit of a breakdown on the parts that go into it. I mean, they don't really include labor. I don't know if they just assume labor is so cheap and they're they're doing it at these massive factories in China or wherever that they don't really take that into account. Um, but I, have you seen that article? Have you seen... Uh... I, I've actually seen a few of those articles and it's a little bit misleading because they state that the Apple Watch, all the parts that are inside of the actual watch cost just $85. And of course, you're comparing that to a device that costs $349 or $400 or I right. guess $17,000. But that's a whole different story because that's gold. Um, but it's a little bit misleading because they're not, like you said, they're not factoring in labor, but they're also not factoring in licensing fees that they have to pay for patents that they're using, or they're not factoring in the marketing that they have to make back, or the research and development, or mm -hmm. the software, or this and that. So there's a lot of things... Of course, yeah, sure, the, the parts m might cost $85, but if they were to sell it for $100 or $150, they would actually be in the red because they're not factoring in all those other things. And all companies do this, not just Apple. You might be thinking, oh, Apple's making, they're just making this much more expensive so they can make money. Well, first of all, that's part of business. But whether it be like a computer or a tablet from any other company, the parts are always going to be much cheaper, if not like two or three times cheaper than the actual product is being sold for because they have to. It's kind of like the pharmaceutical industry. I read a good analogy. A, a single pill can sell for one cent, but, if that, that, but they sell that pill for a dollar each. And that's because they have to they've spent so much research and development into making these pills, they have to make that money back. They spent millions and millions and millions of dollars being able to eventually make this pill. So if they if they sell it for two cents or three cents each, they're not gonna make any money back and they're gonna eventually go bankrupt. So that's just how business works. So I find these articles a little bit misleading, but it's interesting to see that, you know, $85 is, is all it takes. So hopefully in a few years, once Apple has made all that money back on the patents and the marketing, they can eventually, hopefully by the next Apple Watch, they can bring that cost down. I honestly, I don't think like three hundred fifty to a thousand dollars is even that unreasonable. I don't know if I'm looking at it from a jaded uh, point of view. I'm by no means that I come from a family that was rich. It's not like I'm looking at it like, oh yeah, you know, mom brought home thousand dollar earrings every night or anything like that. Um, but when you look at it, I mean, you think what you spend on a laptop, you think what you spend for your iPhone, you think what you spend. Uh, for a lot of these different devices in your life, I mean, what people spend for cable internet every month, or or you know, cable and TV every month, um, you know, and, and and what people would spend for you know different you know run tracking apps or things things like that, and you know, sort of being able to have everything tied up in one 
thing. I mean, don't you remember years ago, and I don't know if this is still the case, but like the big Buku fancy remote controls for your TV with the screen in them. Mm-hmm. People were spending $250 for a TV remote or more. You know what I mean? And it, it that served one function that had one thing that it did for you, for you in your life, and that was control your television and maybe your sound system. You know what I mean? Now you have a device that, you know, in theory is going to control everything from communication with family and friends to, like, personal home network, personal health, um, you know, track your own health, track all kinds of things. You know, doctors might be able to, you know, link in with your Apple Watch and keep track of stuff like the, the real exercise you're actually doing, you know, watch your heart rate from afar. I mean, who knows what it could tell you about your car. There's so many different things that it has uh, the possibility of doing. And granted, all of those are not going to be realized in the first iteration of the Apple Watch. Um, But I really don't think 350 bucks to, you know, 500 bucks is is that much in the grand scheme of things. Now, like you said, I don't know how many apps there are for it. I mean, when you say there are a lot of apps, are we talking like 100 apps or, you know, 1,000 apps or... Um, I don't know the exact number, but the apps that I had available to sync with my Apple Watch was probably around 20. And I don't okay. have very many apps on my iPhone, so I have to imagine there are several, you know, probably at least a thousand apps that are available for the Apple Watch. Um, most of them are probably useless at this point, but they're there, and developers are definitely taking note and they're trying at least to make these apps available and trying to make them a little bit useful. But in terms of price, it really never bothered me. When Tim Cook announced that it was or starting at $350, I said, oh, okay. Of course, there are Android Wear devices and Samsung Wear, whatever they call it, devices that are less than $350. But when you take a look at, one, what they look like, and two, what the build quality is, they're not, you can't really compare them. Because even the sport watch that I'm wearing right now is a beautiful, beautifully made device. It looks great on my wrist. I can hardly feel it. It's incredibly light. Of course, the Apple Watch, the stainless steel one, is a little bit heavier, and I tried that on at the Apple Store, slightly heavier, but an absolutely beautiful device. The bands are beautiful, and the devices, the other smart watches that are being sold for $200 or $250, you just can't compare them. Sure, they might do a little bit more, but it's really, it's a fashion accessory. That's a lot of what the price is coming down to, but we're also seeing other companies like Tag Hewler, I think that's how you pronounce it. And there was this other Korean company that we mentioned at some point, it starts with an H, I don't remember what it was, but they're coming out with smartwatches that start at $1,500. And they're basically marketing it as a fashion accessory that also you know, can reply to messages and give you notifications. So I, I don't, I'm not really bothered by the price and I think people will get used to it. And if you don't want it, don't buy it. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I th- I feel like it's a uh, it's something. I I don't. I think it's more than, much more than a fashion statement. I know that's part of it. I, I understand you're not saying that's just a fashion statement, but I know there are some people out there saying basically, you know, it's an overpriced fashion statement. Um, you know, and who would waste their money on this thing when it, all it does is you know show off to your friends your opulence and your wealth or whatever. Um, I think I honestly I think it's much more than that. But I think so. Whatever. So, moving on. New tech. I guess that's a, a a good thing to talk about because ten years ago, YouTube, uh, April of two thousand five, YouTube started um, and was doing something quite different from anyone else. Back in the day, when you would put video online, you would drink bandwidth for your website. Uh-huh. I mean, you would just your web hosting bill would be a thousand bucks a month if you had any kind of videos on your website and any kind of, you know, 200 to 500 people watching them, you would be paying an incredible amount of money for that. Um, and YouTube is 10 years old. Uh, the first YouTube video uploaded, I believe it was, um, like a, a video of elephants from the San Diego zoo or something. I remember hearing. Yeah, it was, um, one of the Apple, one of the founders, not of Apple, but of YouTube, I think his name is Jared. He posted, it was called Me at the Zoo. It was just him at the zoo exploring. Maybe it was the San Diego Zoo. I don't know. But yeah, it was 10 years ago last week or the week before. Yeah, I think it was like April 23rd or April 25th of 2005 is when Mm -hmm. uh, it uploaded. Um, And I mean, YouTube took off pretty quickly. I mean, by 2006, 2006 is when I jumped on board. Um, And, you know, I mean, we've just watched it go through the stinking roof, become very, very commercialized. Um, I remember in the early days, a lot of people were fighting against the commercialization, all of the, you know, smaller bloggers. 
um, you know, that, that we're you know, sort of fighting, keep the blogs together and, you know, we all need to do our thing and, you know, stop selling out and stuff like that. But as soon as kind of the bigger corporations moved in and the, and the traffic really started getting driven to the site, Google bought, Google bought YouTube. Wasn't that 2007, 2008? 2008 possibly. Yeah, Cause the it, partner program started around that time. Um, yeah, I think it was 2008. Gotcha. Yeah. Because I, for some reason, I didn't think it was that long ago, but I guess it does make sense when you think back on it. Um, but anyway, in honor of the 10th anniversary of YouTube, YouTube is releasing one video a day for each letter of the alphabet, starting at A, ending at Z. I, I read the blog post about it. I don't really know what, what it is. I don't know when exactly it starts. I haven't I found one. I looked around on YouTube to see if I could find one. I don't know where they're putting them um, or what it is exactly that they're doing, um, but I guess something to keep your eye on. Um, yeah, it's but. it's interesting. I don't really know what the point is exactly. It's not like they have to show that they can upload these videos because they have so much bandwidth or something. I'm not 100% sure, but it's, it's really interesting that YouTube's been around for 10 years now, and we've been on YouTube since, I, I, I guess it's nine years, because we both jumped on in 2009 or 2006. 2006 and uh, we were like super competitors at, at one point we were the only people on YouTube or one of the only two people who was uploading Photoshop tutorials and I remember at one point we kept going back and forth in terms of subscribers and then mm -hmm. it got to the point where like let's just work together and build each other up and now like nine years later we're doing podcasts together it's really interesting to see how far YouTube has come and how how far we have come because of YouTube well yeah and I remember when we were on YouTube um, and you know, we had like I had fifty thousand subscribers or something, and I was in the top fifty of the most subscribed on all of YouTube. Um, you know, this is before anybody ever had. You know, a mil obviously before a million subscribers, um, and you know, you sort of watch those top people. There's like the whole lonely girl thirteen mm. or fifteen or whatever yep. that weirdness was, um, and, and just you had these kind of characters and and people who were you know up there uh, in in the top levels of YouTube before a lot of the celebrities moved in. Um, but even now, you still have some of those original shows that are still way up near the top of YouTube. Um, but yeah, it was it, it, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, uh, some of the people that we knew way back in the day, like Philip DeFranco, who's um, who back then was SXE Phil. We were good friends back in what is 2008, 2009 on Stickam, where we used to just chat with each other and helped each other out. He's now running SourceFed, which is this massive company of like 200 employees. It's just it's incredible to see how far people have come specifically just on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. So yeah, just a, just something to note YouTube 10 years old and they're going to celebrate for, I guess, 26 days. Uh, whenever that starts, we don't know. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, speaking of YouTube, I actually uploaded on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash ice studios, a little bit of a plug, um, two videos on the new Lightroom CC release, which some people are also calling it Lightroom six, but we'll get to that in a second. Adobe did release Lightroom CC two weeks ago, I believe, or a week and a half ago, something like that. Yeah, it was about and, a week and a half ago. Yeah, and it was, it was a, you know, in sort of a way, and it was it was a big update. But some people are looking at it like, Ugh, I don't really need this stuff. So the two massive features that they added in Lightroom CC was HDR processing and panorama support, which traditionally you had to have either Photoshop or a third-party plugin in order to do, and it was. A little bit of a pain because you had to load your photos into Lightroom. You had to select them or maybe do a little bit of processing, bring them into Photoshop, merge them, bring them back into Lightroom, and then do some more processing. But now with Lightroom CC, you can all do that directly in Lightroom so you don't have to take them into other applications or third-party plugins. Now, one thing that's interesting to note, HDR in Lightroom CC is 16-bit which is a little bit disappointing considering they have all this extra GPU power in Lightroom CC, which is supposed to be up to 10 times faster. But yeah, it's only 16-bit, which... Did you see that, uh, to interrupt you for a second, uh -huh. did you see that the despite it only being 16-bit uh, and not 32-bit, which is what it is like with Photomatics... Yeah. Um, and Photoshop and Camera Raw. Right. Despite that, you the sliders all change when you're working in HDR. Like your exposure slider, you're you're able to go ten stops up or ten stops back instead of just the normal five stops. So they are. I mean, you're definitely able to work with more image 
Uh, right. Now I haven't I haven't taken an HDR image through it. I don't know what kind of quality, uh, how detrimental it is to quality or non detrimental to quality. I don't really know uh, kind of what that what that's like. Um, but I did play around with it a little bit. Um, I like the update. This is the kind of update that I think you're going to get with a service like Creative Cloud. You're not going to get these full-fledged application every 18 months you have, you know, a dozen and a half new features and, you know, six new techniques and, you know, 10 new ways of doing things or, or 10 new, uh, uh, like, tools to work with or something. Uh, it's just not the way it's going to be. You're going to have, you know, less update or more updates but less things in each update. I, at least I feel like that's what they're going to do. Um, the, personally, the thing that I like most is just the speed of it. Mm -hmm. I, I hated you know, start clicking on a library of photos and having to sit there and wait for everything to load up. I can import, you know, last night I imported 600 photos from this menu shoot that I had yesterday, imported them. It took, you know, 30 seconds, if that. They just bam, 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 all came in, filled up. Uh, and I know the transfer speed is not Lightroom. It's the it's the USB 3 cable that you're using or, or Thunderbolt or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the library being built and the thumbnails all showing up, and when you click through images, how quickly they load and become 100% you know, previewable. I mean, if, if I have to look through 400 photos and zoom in on all of them and make sure that they're sharp before I deliver them to a client for something like I was shooting this drinks menu yesterday, I want to make sure it's crisp and sharp and has great contrast and all this different stuff. You know, waiting a minute or two for every photo, not a minute, I guess, but waiting even 20 seconds for 400 photos to load, you're talking about almost two hours that it's going to take you just to go through and examine the photos. So being able to speed that process up a lot, that's huge. Um, and, and just the, the speed factor, and which is one of the things that I liked about Photoshop, was it CS6 or was it CC when they sort of rebuilt from the ground up a little bit and just, improved, and just improved the speed, I mean, just top to bottom. It was a huge speed upgrade. Yeah, um, I remember when, when I, I think it was CS6 again, but when they released that update, they completely overhauled the 3D capabilities in CS6 mm -hmm. from CS5, and I did a comparison, yeah. and it was just light and day. Not only was most of it built directly into the UI, it wasn't like in a, I think it was reprose in CS5, mm -hmm. which is some French word for extrusion or something. Um, it was just so much faster. It was incredible. Right. Yeah. And a speed kills. So, you know, to have, you know, you can give me all the features you want all day, but give me speed before you give me any, any of that um, so I can actually use it. The Pano stuff in Lightroom, I haven't played around with. Have you tried it out? Have you tested it or used yep, I it? Did a, I did release a video on it and it works incredibly well. I mean, um, the one thing you don't really have when you're doing panoramas in Lightroom CC versus Photoshop is you can't open it as an image with layers. So that the bits that it crops out or the bits that's left over, usually it's white or transparent. Right. It's just white in Lightroom. So you have to bring it back into Photoshop and crop it out or whatever yeah. it is. There is an option to auto crop, but again, you don't have those layers to work with. Well, yeah, and a lot of times too in Photoshop, you have the content aware fill. So if it's something like sky right. in a corner, it's just a, you know, boom and it's yeah. done. Um, what about the face tagging? I saw the face tagging and the first thing, just to make a quick side note, the face tagging icon does not fit the rest of the UI. It literally looks like they took a piece of cheap clip art and just like stuck it down there on the button. I had yep. just a little pet peeve of mine mm -hmm. that I noticed while I was messing around with it. I don't think this is going to turn into anything. I mean, they still haven't been able to get keywording uh, to really catch on. I remember with Bridge, keywording was a big thing, and now keywording is a big thing in Lightroom as well. Nobody has time to sit there and keyword all their photos. I understand it's a feature. I understand in theory it's probably a great thing, um, but something like backing up your photos is something that you should be taking that extra time and spending more time doing uh, rather than keywording, in my opinion at least. Oh, totally. Yeah, I used the, the face tagging feature, obviously, because I was putting together my article, and I probably won't use it again. First of all, it to index my entire catalog, which isn't a huge catalog, it took about half an hour to do. And then once it was finished, I found it recognized, let's say, let's take me for example, there was like... Yeah, what? real quick, can, can you explain the indexing process just for people that don't understand what, what you're talking about there? Like what is Lightroom doing when, when it's indexing your library? Right, so it's basically going through every single photo in every single catalog or every single collection or whatever it might be, and it's analyzing for faces. And it's, you know, put, once it recognizes a face, it puts it into a folder or a stack of people that it thinks 
has the same face. So what I found, which was a little bit frustrating, is there was like 30 or 40 stacks of me, separate stacks. So I had to go through every single one of them and say, yep, that's me, and that's me, and that's me. So it didn't do a great job. I think Apple's face detection back in Aperture was a little bit better, and even an iPhoto. Um, so, so it's probably not something I would really use. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Some people might find it useful, but I just don't really, I'm not really into tagging my, my, uh, my, the people in my, uh, in my libraries. I would just put them into collections or something like that. Right. Well, I mean, speaking of tagging people, Facebook's face detection is actually pretty good. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it is very good. And so, I mean, if it was something like that where it could automatically do that or just say, hey, is this so-and-so? But the problem is, again, I mean, for like a portrait photographer like myself, what am I going to do? Sit there for 300 photos and say, yeah, that's that person, that's that person. Or no, don't add it to the library. Don't add it to the library. I don't need this. Yep. Um, you know, because so so much of the photography work that I'm doing is job-based that I'm just creating a folder or a collection in Lightroom and saying, look, all the photos from that shoot, boom, they go into that collection. You know what I mean? And I know that, hey, amongst that 300 photos there, there, well, number one, that's all I have of this job or this person. So if the client comes to me and says, hey, I need this, I can say, here's what we have. Um, so I, I don't know. Personally, it's something that I don't think I would ever use. That being said, maybe it'll end up being something that I use a lot. Um, but just at first glance, does not seem like something uh, I would use very much at all. But definitely, I think... Oh, an, an update worthwhile. And there's also a standalone version of Lightroom still as well, right? Like you don't there, have to sign up for Creative yeah, Cloud. Do I right. At the you? moment, there is. It's $149 uh, for the upgrade or Lightroom 6, as they're calling it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hidden on Adobe's website. So I, I think, of course, I don't know for sure. This could be the last version, standalone version of Lightroom. I hope it's not because photographers are very picky about their software. And some photographers only use Lightroom. They don't really care for Photoshop because they don't do much composition or anything like that. Right. And they really don't want to pay. And I'm probably going to get some flack for saying this, but a lot of photographers are of the older generation. So they're not really on board with the whole Creative Cloud monthly subscription thing. And it kind of frightens them to an extent. Yeah. And I mean, I know I bought um, Capture One Pro, which is phase one's uh, sort of camera raw editing tool. It's amazing. Uh, that's 300 bucks as mm-hmm. a standalone piece of software. So I think as long as Lightroom stays a little bit cheaper, uh, it'll be a feasible thing. But I mean, how long until you just realize, all right, why are we still doing the standalone software? Um, we're just going to have to force everybody to update. Um, but I just know with the finicky nature of something like Lightroom uh, and tethering, I think there's just a comfort there for photographers knowing, look, I have it on my computer. I don't have to worry about internet connections. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And tethering your camera to your computer always seems to be a finicky thing for some photographers. I mean, I've been I've been watching Creative Live sometimes when they'll have issues with tethering a camera to you know a screen that they have or something, and it's like what in the world? It's a plug and play. It's a 5D Mark III. It's the most popular DSLR out there. How is it not tethering correctly? Um, So I I don't know. I feel like all of that, and like you said about the the older generation. Um, who aren't comfortable with it. I mean, I'm not really comfortable with Creative Cloud either, but I don't have a choice at this point. Um, so while I'll still kind of like yell about it a little bit, um, I'll kind of do it in a quieter voice than I did before. <laughs> That's true. I mean, the, the world is changing, and I guess subscription models, whether it be your software or your television or whatever it might be, they're probably here to stay, at least for now. Yeah. So uh, Canon released a new mirrorless camera. We've talked this about should be fun. <laughs> we've talked about different mirrorless cameras before on the show and I think we had mentioned we mentioned when this was announced, I believe. Um, and we we've talked about uh, the Sony uh, mirrorless cameras and the Nikon mirrorless camera um, and some different things like that. Uh, and this camera, it's 599 pounds, so about 900 bucks. Doesn't look like it's in the US as of yet. Uh, I did see some people from Japan selling them on eBay, and all the auctions were between $500 and $900. Um, Plus then I guess you'd have to pay for your shipping to get it across. Um, It looks like spec-wise it should be a good camera. Mm. Um, The the original M, the the Canon EOS M1, I guess you could call it, uh, was pretty well crushed. And then the EOS M2 came out, and that was crushed and now the m3 has come out and i think even if it is a good camera canon has set themselves so far behind as far as 
just public perception of the product. I mean, think about Apple. The positive public perception allows them to get away with a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. The negative public per- perception here of Canon's mirrorless cameras not only will it not allow them to get away with stuff, but it'll probably make issues out of things that really would never be an issue otherwise. Uh, so that's just something that I'm trying to keep in mind while looking at reviews and things like that. That being said, uh, 24.2 megapixel APS C size CMOS sensor. Um, it doesn't have the dual pixel focus technology uh, found in some of Canon's more advanced DSLRs. I actually, quick side note, I would have thought something like the EOS M3, you would have just taken like your 20 megapixel sensor right out of the Canon 7D Mark II that they just had come out with its all of its autofocusing points and everything. You don't need any kind of crazy full frame sensor, um, and and it's a, a very advanced sensor. I don't really know why they didn't do that. Um, iOS range is 100 to 12,800 and expandable to 25,600 uh, and full HD 1080p uh, recording at 30, 25, or 24 frames per second. There's no 4K no uh, in 4K this camera, yet. which I guess kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if, if they have the XC10, that's 2,500 bucks, and then they release a mirrorless camera that shoots at 4K, uh, that would seem to sort of, you know, you're cutting your legs out from underneath you from selling that larger camera. Um, one thing that I should mention, oh, I forget what I was going to mention about. Oh, we were looking at some video clips before we got, you know, jumped on and started recording you and I from the camera. Um, and I don't know if it was the compression that the guy uploaded with, um, or compression from YouTube, but especially as you got up in the, not even the high ISOs, I mean, halfway to 12,800, you're around ISO, maybe it wasn't even 6,400, maybe it was ISO 3,200. Um, and that clip was, I mean, it was unusable. Yeah. It was awful. I mean, it yeah, I was like- reading a bunch of reviews, and not only is the video quality at higher ISOs completely garbage, but even photo quality, once you get to ISO 800, it starts to show a little bit of noise, and then 3200, apparently, it just looks terrible, which yeah. for a camera coming out in this day of age, you should easily be able to go up to 3200 and have just a little bit of noise and remove that later. I've spoken about the Sony A7S and the A7R many times in the past because I've rented it from Lens Rentals, and mm. it was a fantastic mirrorless camera. Well, the, A7, an, the A7 series, though, is like a cut above, right? I mean, that's not... Well, it is a bit of, more pricey, yeah. I mean, that we, this is more like the Sony A7000, I think it is, or something like that, which is more like this. Um, but I mean, I've heard problems with the A7000 as well. Nothing to the extent that I've heard of the the M series here by Canon. I would be interested to see. I would still be interested to to get the video side of this in my hands and give it a shot. Right. I think it could be really cool. I've told you before, Howard, that I have a, a Fuji X100T, which does 30 frame per second. Actually, I might go higher than 30 frames per second. I can't remember, but it has 1080p video recording. But the problem is, if I were to shoot little videos with it, which I would love to be able to do, I can't really get the focusing. I mean, I would have to focus it like a traditional DSLR, where I go and focus it manually and then hope that I'm in focus uh, once I get in front of the camera because there's no way of seeing the back of the screen unless I have an assistant you know, sitting there filming me. The Canon M series, it, the screen will flip around, uh, which is super cool. I mean, I've tried connecting an external monitor to my Fuji, um, and it doesn't allow you to do that. Um, so something like that would be super cool for YouTubers. Um, obviously, 4K would have been great, or even like a 2K option or something like that would have been interesting. Um, didn't happen. Um you know, I don't know. Video would have been where a camera like this would have been great. The Sony A7000, I've heard, heats up a lot when you shoot, if you're shooting extended periods of time, like interviews and things like that. But just think, I mean, having a camera that's small like this to be able to go and take it and use it for interviews, and the interview could just be yourself. You know what I mean? I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk has those, you know, Ask Gary V daily, you know, podcast, vlog things that he does. Um, you know, a camera like this, I would think would be amazing for something like that because it's, it's plug and play. Slap a microphone on it. It does have a hot shoe and it does have a mic input. So you could throw like a, one of Rhodes, you know, uh, shotgun video mics on there, $250 microphone, which is incredible sound quality. Throw that on there. You know, get the little 11 to 22 millimeter lens for the Canon, uh, you know, a little pancake lens very compact and if the video quality were there 
I would think this would be an incredible little setup you could probably get for around, I don't know, $1,100, $1,200. You could have the whole thing. $1,200 is what the Fuji X100T costs, but you could have not only this Canon EOS M3, but you could also have the high-quality $250 uh, Rode microphone mounted on top of it on the hot shoe. So I don't know. I mean, for me, it's all about the video. Uh, but I have, um, and I don't know what you were going to start to say about the photos before I so rudely interrupted you, but I did see something about the autofocusing system, and it does not look like it's very good at all. Better than the other M's, but still very bad. Yeah, and that was the main problem with the EOS M1 and even the EOS M2, is the autofocusing was absolutely terrible, and it seems like they've dramatically increased it or improved it in the EOS M3, but from what I'm reading, it's still lacking from some of the competitors. It still takes a little bit of time to actually focus on your subject. And I really wonder, and maybe I don't, just don't know the technology very well, but you're seeing cell phones. I think the LG G3 and now the LG G4, they use this laser auto-focusing auto system, which works incredibly well. You just point it at something and these lasers just are able to focus on stuff. I'm wondering why that technology is not in DSLRs or even mirrorless cameras. Again, maybe I don't know the technology well enough. Maybe it's not possible at this point, but it would seem like the logical next step to put these laser systems, laser focusing systems in these cameras to have instant focusing. Yeah, I mean, I, I know the Fuji, it's not, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a fast focusing camera. It's not slow, but like, I mean, the Canon 5D Mark II with a decent lens on it. I mean, the lens really is what will dictate the, the focusing speed, kind of. Um, but with a half-decent lens on it, I mean, the 5D Mark II blows the Fuji out of the water. I mean, it's not even close. Uh, and then you put on a fast-focusing lens like Canon's 135 F2 lens, and forget about it. It's, it. It doesn't stand a chance. Um, but, I mean, I saw a series of photos. A guy put the, the EOS M3 into AI servo mode, and took a series of photos of his dog running toward him. And the AI servo mode typically is what you'd use in sports because you can sort of keep shooting and the camera's going to continually refocus even mm -hmm. though your finger is on the shutter. So like if a football player is running toward you, you just keep snapping away. And you don't have to worry about the camera refocusing because it's automatically doing it as long as you're taking pictures. Well, the, he, he took the, the series of photos. It's like eight or ten photos of the dog running toward him. Every single one of them is out of focus. Yeah, of course. Every <laughs> single one. And it's not just a little out of focus. It's very, very noticeably out of focus. Um, so I don't know. I mean, for 900 bucks, I would just go with like a Sony or the Panasonic has those great GH4 and GH5. I think uh, right, the, yep. the GH5 just come out or something, um, which look like they're amazing. And Sony, I don't know. When it comes to mirrorless – I love the Fuji because it's just like, I don't know, it looks like a film camera and it emulates a little bit of a film style. In fact, the photos I've been posting about my nephew on Facebook, um, those I've shot all with the Fuji and I've been able to Wi-Fi them right over to my phone. Those are great photos, by the way. Yeah, which I'm hoping to put together a little book for my brother and sister-in-law once this whole saga has died mm. down. But, you know, so I, I love that aspect of it. I love that it, it, it just seems a little filmy. You know what I mean? It, it, yep. It's obviously digital, but it has a little bit of something to it. And I love that. Um, but I mean, if I, if I had to put my money somewhere, I would definitely go with Sony when it comes to mirrorless and maybe it's just what you were starting to say earlier about the A7S, their, their flagship mirrorless, they've figured something out and it's really, really good. Yeah. And it's very disappointing because I've been with Canon since I think I got my first Canon for my 18th birthday. So it's yeah, 10 years now. And I would love to stick with Canon because I have so many lenses that I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on. And to see Canon try to get into the mirrorless world three times and fail possibly all three times, it's kind of disconcerting, especially since we're kind of moving towards a mirrorless world. We're seeing yeah. more and more. It may not replace DSLRs or mirrored uh, cameras right away, I'm, but I'm it will eventually. Yeah, I kind of think it will. Yeah, I it think will. you're right and, about that. And to see Canon fail three times, like I said, it really makes me want to pack up and go to either Sony or any of these other companies who have been doing it successfully for several years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't yes. know what else to say, but. Yeah, I, I hope Canon jumps on this and fixes it. I, at this point, they should just like not release more mirrorless cameras until they have it right. I mean, they obviously have people who are researching these things and they have people who test their cameras. 
I don't know why they're releasing this, but you know, it is what it is. And I'm certainly not going to spend $900 on this thing. No. Anyways, moving on to our final subject. And we actually don't have any questions today. So this will be her last subject. Last night, Tesla released a battery for the house. Now this is crazy. Obviously Tesla is known as a car company. They've, they released their Tesla electric car several years ago a really good looking car it's very good looking incredibly expensive i totally want one but i can't afford it but they make some great cars they're actually coming up with a i think a cheaper sedan was it this year or next year somewhere in the forty thousand dollar range i believe but last night elon musk took the stage and he released sort of like two products basically it's under the tesla energy brand and the first one is called the power wall and basically it's a 10 kilowatt hour version for $3,500 and a 7 kilowatt hour version for $3,000, which sounds like a lot of money if you're not really sure what these products are. But basically, it's it's a battery that powers your whole entire house. And the two versions, the 7 kilowatt is basically for everyday usage and then the 10 kilowatt is for emergency purposes also can serve as a backup battery so if you're elon said if you're if you live somewhere very cold and they have ice storms and things like that that would be probably the model you want to get because if the power does go out it just switches to that backup battery and it's pretty seamless now one thing i will say even though these batteries are relatively cheap compared to what we've seen and they're relatively you know, they're, they're beautiful batteries. Other batteries are just terrible and they're ugly and whatever. You still need, well, there's two options. You can either go completely off the grid with solar power. So during the day, it would charge up these batteries. During the night, if you're using a lot of power, it would power your basically whole house. Now, obviously that doesn't come with solar powers or panels. So if you are someone who's looking to go off the grid, don't look at the $3,500 number as the be all and end all of going off the grid. You st- solar panels still are pretty pricey and they could range from to cover your whole roof or at least enough of the roof to power these things. It could range from $10,000 up to $50,000. So going off the grid at this point in time is still a little bit pricey, but it's nice to see that Tesla is kind of bringing down the price a little bit with these batteries and making a little bit more affordable for people like you and I. Now, there is another option to connect it directly with your utilities so you can still stay on the grid and have this backup battery and it will save you a little bit of time and money and energy and stuff like that. Now the second product they released is called the Power Pack and this is for businesses and it's pretty much infinitely scalable. It can power, I think Target is on board as one of the early testers and it could basically power their whole entire stores with this battery pack. And what was interesting is they showed a bunch of graphs and they showed a bunch of charts and stuff like that. And they said that with 160 million power packs, you can power the whole entire United States of America and completely remove the need for any sort of utilities. It can can power heat and stuff like that, electricity. I mean, if I knew it was that easy, why haven't we done it already? Only 160 million of them. I mean, come on. Well, well, that's the thing. Well, yeah, exactly. And then he said with 2 billion, you can power the whole entire world, which seems insane. But then he gave the analogy of, look how many cars are on the road at any given time, or not any given time, but the amount of cars that exist that are in use is around 2 billion. So if you start now, it probably won't be anytime soon that we see the entire United States or even the entire world being powered by these battery packs. But, you know, in 50, 100, 200 years, which... Obviously, we're not going to be around in 200 years, but if the government or the utility companies allows this to happen, which they may not, we could see a time when, or we won't see a time, but our children's children may see a time where the whole entire world is powered by, maybe it's not Tesla's battery packs, but something similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then just kind of the move away from the grid. Uh, Even the... um the Powerwall battery packs, the the thirty, or I'm sorry, the ten kilowatt and the seven kilowatt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can install multiple batteries together, right? So if you need more than just ten, and you buy obviously multiple batteries, you can mount them and they kind of like click together. Yeah, they like interlocked. It actually looks beautiful. I've never seen a battery that looks this beautiful. I lo- I love that Tesla is very similar to Apple, where they spend all this time and 
effort making these products look beautiful, something mm -hmm. that you would gladly hang out in your garage. Um, but yeah, you can, I think you can tether nine of them together and they come in different colors. They have white and red and black. So if you have a specifically colored garage or wherever you hang this battery, you can definitely choose a color that matches your decor. Yeah, I mean it's it's a really it's a really cool uh, concept. And if you think a lot of the backup generators that people have now, not that everybody has one, not by a long shot, um, but you know there's big brown boxes or red and black boxes that sit kind of outside of the house. This very much looks like. I mean, it's not really a generator so much as a, a conservation tool to bleed off extra power if you're plugged into the grid or absorb the extra power or the power that's being generated or collected, I should say, by solar panels. Um, I don't know. It seems really, really neat and really, honestly, kind of affordable. I mean, doctor's offices spend a ton of money on backup batteries and backup generators and things like that. And even just like I have a backup battery here for my computer desktop just for something as dumb as a, you know, a lightning storm and power goes out for 10 seconds. I, it's really annoying to have your computer shut off. Now, if you have a laptop, you have automatically backup battery built in. Um, but you know, it's, it's, you know, same kind of point. I mean, it mine's a little cheap, you know, thing that lasts for 30 minutes. Um, but it's usually enough to get me through, you know, lightning storms and stuff like that that happens if I'm in the middle of working on something or recording something, etc. Um, but I mean, having something for the whole house would be cool. I mean, there have been times when the power's gone out, either for, you know, snow or ice storms or something like that. Um, you know, and having something like that would be, you know, really cool, useful. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how quickly the adoption will be for, you know, families like households like you and I. I think it might take a while. I would totally get one if I had solar panels on my roof. But it does seem, especially where I live close to Boulder, that a lot of the new homes that are being built are coming with solar panels already installed on the roof because they're becoming so. I think even IKEA is selling, not in the U.S., but they're. I think somewhere in Europe, they're selling solar panels, and they're selling them much cheaper as the technology advances and they find different ways of t grabbing that sunlight and converting into energy. So I think over the next few years, the price of solar panels will continue to go down. Yeah. And I would totally, once that happens, you know, get a roofer and tell them to pop this stuff on my roof. And then honestly, for 3,500 bucks to get a backup battery that takes me, takes me completely off the grid and can potentially save me in a power outage, would be uh, would be very interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. So definitely cool, cool products by Tesla and Tesla Motors. Or Tesla Motors is just a like an adjunct of the Tesla company, right? I think Tesla Motors is the the main company because if you go to the Tesla Energy website where they're selling the power packs or the power walls, mm -hmm. at the very bottom it says copyright copyright Tesla Motors oh. 2015 or something like that. But okay. it's really interesting to see what technology Tesla and Elon Musk, who's absolutely brilliant. I wish we had more people like him because uh, he obviously runs SpaceX and he founded or co-founded PayPal or something like that. But he's just an incredibly brilliant person. I just, I wish we had more of Elon's in the world. Yeah. Well, at least the tech, the tech side of the world might be it. Oh, and, and he's the one behind um, the Hyperloop. That story was, I think we spoke about this previously. Yeah, that was the he, train that would run from like San Fran to LA or something, right? Well, it's it's this idea he had. I get, maybe he was just like sitting there one day. He's like, oh, we should do this. And he released this because he didn't have the time to do it. He released this like 800-page document on this Hyperloop idea. And he basically said, I don't have the time to do it, so somebody else do it. And the concept is he can create this tube, this vacuum tube, where people can sit in little chairs in this tube and travel from city to city at 700 miles per hour. And... When, when he first released this, people were thinking, okay, this is crazy. What is this guy smoking? But now we're hearing in Texas, they're building this thing and it's actually working, which is mind blowing that this guy was just like, you know, I don't, I don't have the time to do this, but here's an idea that could potentially change the world. Somebody else do it. Right, figure it out. It's you guys, incredible. Yeah, you guys take it. This is, I don't, I don't <laughs> have time for this. I'm, 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 building private, exactly. I'm building private spaceships and, and electric supercars. You know, you guys worry about the Hyperloop. But. Yeah, and what's really cool about Elon and Tesla is I believe they just opened their battery technology, the patent. They basically opened it up so any company can, um, you know, pair, partner up with Tesla and use this stuff without having to pay. Create. I'm sure their licensing fees are um, to an extent, but 
they're not you're not going to sue them or whatever it might be which is really cool yeah it's awesome cool so that would do it this is episode number 12 of the week podcast 12. and we will be back next week with more goodness i don't know what we'll talk about we'll find things to talk about we don't have any questions this week so make sure to tweet us i'm at iceflow studios nathaniel's at tutvid use the hashtag we geeks and we also take questions on twitter and facebook and all the fun social networks and um, make sure to share this podcast uh, that's one of the ways that this podcast will blow up eventually. Share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter. We are on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Check us out there, follow us there, leave us reviews. And uh, you, what else do you got? Anything you else to think? Leave reviews, even negative reviews, I would say. Yes. Yeah, so just, yeah. But only, only if you really don't like something about it. Don't just leave negative reviews for the sake of leaving, leaving negative reviews. Yeah. <laughs> that might, yeah, it might prevent <laughs> other people from watching. Unless it's yeah. a satirical negative review. Negative that's toward true. the people who would not listen. Then, then that's those are good negative reviews. We we like those kind of <laughs> negative reviews. Yeah, no, I guess that's probably about it. That'll pretty well wrap it up for this week. And uh, yeah, hopefully next week will be a, a better week. Not quite so busy for all the wrong reasons, and uh, lots of good tech stuff upcoming. It'll it'll probably contain less about the Apple Watch. I'm sure people are getting sick of me talking about the Apple Watch. But now that it's on my wrist and now that I gave my first impressions, that should probably be it unless something groundbreaking happens. Yeah, I agree. I'm getting sick of hearing about it because I don't because <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> well, you got to get one then you can talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, right. All right. Well, that'll be it for this time. We'll uh, we'll catch you guys later. See you later. See you later.